from his studios in New York. It's time for Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora, where sports meets life. Here's your host, Dan Tortora. Welcome back here to Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora on WakeUpCallDT.com, your one-stop sports shop, and on MixLR.com backslash WakeUpCallDT. When Wake Up Call is not on the road, you'll see us inside of our studios on Facebook Live, Facebook.com backslash LiveNowDT. But when we are on the road, we also do many videos, and so you can always watch those on the same link, Facebook.com backslash LiveNowDT. So with all that being said, it is a portion of Friday's show where we do a segment called Significant Sound Bites, and that segment is dedicated to a spotlight interview. And I thought that this was perfect because Syracuse's offensive line has been going through a lot of woes this year, and this man knows it better than anybody. You know, being on Syracuse in the past, being an offensive lineman in the past, and just, you know, what it takes and the thankless job that it is a lot of the time. And when things are going well, people don't know your name. And when things are going bad, then, you know, they, they're blaming you and whatnot. So, you know, he knows the offensive line through and through. He can speak on it and give a great angle to that. He's also one of the great offensive linemen that have come through Syracuse in recent history. He had an opportunity in the NFL. He has a story to tell from that. And, and of course, we can speak about players getting paid inside of the NCAA now, student-athletes getting paid for name, image, and likeness. So, so much coming up here with our spotlight conversation, and that is with Sean Hickey of Syracuse Orange Football History. It's been way too long. He said that when we first jumped on the phone off the air here. It's been a long time since him and I have spoken, and I've missed the conversation, and so I'm hoping that this will be the beginning of of many conversations that we'll have, and, and it's my honor as always to have him on the show. So let's bring him in. Sean, how you doing today? Hey, Dan, how you doing? Good to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, and, and Sean, first and foremost, for you, you know, you and I were talking off the air about your story and kind of what you went through and injury and whatnot and, and you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing, because I know you shared it with me and I feel like we built that relationship and I appreciate it tremendously. And so, you know, whatever you feel comfortable sharing today, I'd love to share your story a little bit here. Yeah, so I had to stay quiet uh, for a long time coming out of college and my early career and about an injury that I knew was always going to be a challenge going to the NFL. And some teams were okay with it. Some teams weren't. I did fail multiple physicals and some teams passed me. I always had to sign an injury waiver after my rookie year. Is in, Ever since I was about in eighth grade, I had multiple disc issues in my low back and I had dealt it through through high school through college and I was able to manage it and the training staffs would really work with you in college to make you ready for the for the uh for the game and whatnot they'd be very they cater towards you but when you get the NFL and there's money involved if you get hurt and then you have to do an injury settlement and you get put on IR it, it becomes a, a different type of ball game and you have to either stay quiet about it or if you can't stay quiet about it and your play is going to suffer in practice or in training camp or a preseason game, and your film's going to suffer, and they're not going to know why. So it gets a little dicey uh, territory. So my rookie year, I missed the first preseason game because of, it, of aggravating in training camp after having a good camp, and I played the final three games uh, very well. Signed on uh, with the Saints practice squad, 
and I felt that was a good opportunity. However, they let me go a week later because of basically because of the injury. So then I had to, I went into uh, Colorado actually and got some stem cell therapy and a PRP therapy done on it. And I actually didn't blow my back out since, but I still would have to deal with that issue. It would still hurt. It would still be shaky at times and teams knew of the history at this point, but I couldn't really tell anybody through the media or I couldn't, couldn't say anything for my own career's sake. So, uh, and that was also what helped me fall in the draft a little bit. And that was, that was very disappointing at that time. And I just had to change my mentality and say, you, you're walking into work every day. I caught on with Minnesota. You have to play your best absolute football, stay healthy and make them want to keep you around. And that worked out in Minnesota. And then a year later it worked out in Miami. And, uh, once you're not, once you're off your first team, you're known as a cuttable guy, and, and it's right, then it's right place, right opportunity, right timing. And I kind of had it, and I kind of didn't. And I had friends that were out of the league. I met that were out of the league earlier than me, and then there were a couple guys in my situation that actually caught on. One example is Jesse Davis in uh, Miami. I was teammates with him briefly in New York. And I met up with him in Miami, and he, we were in the same position. He got there a few months earlier, and he's starting right now, and he signed a $15 million contract for three years. I'm extremely proud of him. So he's an example of right place, right time. And uh, for me, I got let go because they needed a center. And then I, I signed on with the Jaguars and with Coach Marone, and everything was going well, and I was uh, very excited. And then last year they had a good amount of injuries, but then I blow my cap training camp. And I didn't get any film was the biggest part because it was before the first game. So I knew at that point I was kind of in trouble uh, not having film. The film in the preseason was kept my career alive for the three years that I did. And then going into the fourth year, not getting film, tough pill to swallow. And I stayed in shape through the season and a little bit through the draft because sometimes uh, opportunities pop up after the draft. You get, you get invited to a mini camp and then you could sign on. I didn't hear anything. So then I was like, all right, my career's over. I'm going to lose weight. Started losing weight, and the XFL called. And I was like, I'll just go to their combine, see how I do, the showcase. And I did well, and then they offered me to uh, – they signed me into their draft pool. And they said, we, we value NFL experience. The pay they were saying was going to be 100000 for 10-week season. And that's what they were selling everybody in the beginning. So a lot of us put our lives off through the draft in October – and then the Friday before the draft, they say it's going to go down to 55000 only 27000 guaranteed. And their excuse was because the AAFL failed the year prior, but they had five times the funding, and they knew the AAF failed back in March. So it didn't really make sense why you would tell us in June you'd be making 100000 yeah. instead of instead of 55000 because of the AAFL excuse. I just felt they just wanted to get people – sucked into the league close enough to the season where you're like, all right, you already waited this long. You might as well take 55,000 for half a year, which I still would have done. But then I, I waited all that time. And then they, st- then basically the feedback I got, said they really liked, like you, you had an NFL experience, but they were, but they valued more recent tape that they could watch than experience. So then I kind of wasted all those months for nothing. So now uh, I'm losing weight and transitioning out and moving on to my next career. But yeah, that was kind of like my post-Syracuse road uh, since I left. And it was kind of ups and downs. I thought I was done 
before I got to Minnesota, and I kind of thought I was done before I got to Miami, and I got I got to catch on and then keep my career going a little longer. So I'm happy about that. A couple down points in my life before those opportunities. I'm happy I got those, but uh, native about four years. So it's uh, not exactly what I wanted when I left Syracuse, but uh, not a lot of people can say that they stuck around that long. So, no, and, and you know, for you, and, and like I told you off the air, you know, I'm very sorry to hear about everything that's happened and everything that you went through, and, and the fact that you had that turmoil of, of you know you couldn't really talk about your back and different things that have been bothering you because. You didn't want to, you know, obviously hurt yourself for the future and you were able to play through things and be successful and whatnot. So, you know, I mean, what did all this teach you to to go through everything that you went through, to have the adversity that you've had, to had, you know, kind of keep keep a part of you to yourself and, you know, not not hide, but but to just, you know, not be able to, to tell the whole story, so to speak, until now. And then, you know, to go through the adversity and the injuries and then being lied to by, you know, the XFL and they, they're going to give you this and now they're going to give you that. What did all this teach you? It made me extremely independent. Uh, so when you when you get when you go on these practice, when you go on, like when you sign on to a roster, the 90 man, and then you get brought back for practice squad and it's a week to week life. And you have to, a lot of times you live in an extended stay hotel. You don't know how long it's going to be. Like I got cut once because in Minnesota because I, the sa- safety got hurt. They didn't want to put them on IR. So then they had to bring in another safety for the practice squad and they let me go. And they said nothing to do with your play. You're playing really well. We have to let you go for numbers. And when I got let go for Miami, it's because I could play four positions, but a kid that they brought in couldn't snap the ball that they did and they didn't want to cut a rookie right away. So I got let go because I was there a long, a while and they wanted to give younger guys younger than me a shot. And you kind of learn to live on eggshells in your job, walking through the facility every day, giving your best effort, but you truly don't know how long you're going to be there. And that teaches you a lot. And also going into new cities by yourself, you go into a city and you're, uh, being a, at the time, being a single guy, I mean, I'm not married, but being a single guy and you go in and you leave, you leave work for the day and everybody's going back to their families and you kind of have to make your own way in that city. And that, that, taught, that teaches you a lot to live on your own, to go out and meet friends, make, uh, make acquaintances, all that kind of on your own. And I really, that was value, that was value knowledge that I'm extremely grateful that I got and kind of, Whenever I was at Syracuse, life was kind of great. What life was great. It, talking to the media all the time. I always asked for interviews. All the the the, the attention, like not not necessarily the attention, but the success I had. And then a lot of people were really pumped before the draft, and that were always there. And then they kind of, when things go south, you kind of don't hear from them anymore. Right? Kind of like that same old story that other people talk about, but it is true. And then you got to learn the independence about it after that. And then you you don't have to worry about that type of noise. You're only worried about yourself. You're focusing on yourself. You're not focusing on this person or that person. That's what I learned about a year into the league. And that was extremely valuable. I wouldn't trade that in for the world. Uh, So those were lessons that I'll I'll take on. I'll take with me forever. 
speaking here with Sean Hickey, a Syracuse offensive lineman alum and, and also an alum of the NFL as well. And, and Sean, for you, like you said, you know, getting interview requests all the time. You're at Syracuse. We want to talk to you. The media is around you. The draft's coming up. They're hoping big things for you, you know, and, and, and talking to you after and, and what team you're going to be on and where you're going to catch on and stories that are written. When that started to get quieter and less people – called you and maybe less people pay paid attention or got in touch with you, you know, at this point in your life and whatnot. I know that you said it taught you independence, but what did that do for you mentally to, you know, see all this love and then it gets quiet? Because people talk about that all the time. They're like, you know, when, when you're up on the mountain, everybody wants to, you know, praise you and look up at you and cheer for you. But when you start to come down the mountain and you and you say, where are all these people? Who's going to help me get home? And there's nobody there or there's a couple people there. What did you learn from all that? Oh, you have your close friends. Like my, my teammates from Syracuse. Oh, God, they were always so supportive. Coach Hicks, we still talk on a consistent basis. He's like my second father. Like there's people that are always going to be in your corner. Uh, it was kind of it was tough for a little bit because you can't allow that to think that you're playing poorly, because a couple of the business things that go along with the NFL, the numbers game, the situation of how many linemen they're going to keep. Like when I was with the Saints, the the, the first week they only kept eight linemen. I knew a lot of other teams that met the Vikings, the Dolphins. They kept ten. So if I would have picked it, and I had a real, and they picked. My when I didn't make the fifty three right off the bat, they picked between me and Mike McGlynn, who is an eight year vet who started, and Jari Evans was getting old. I understood why they took Mike over me, but we because he had experience. But we both played very like similar during camp, and that's why I got I caught on the practice squad. But then there was years later where I had draft picks that were rookies. I had a better camp than they did their rookie year, but then they catch on because there was a draft pick invested in them. And there are also 10 linemen, that, 9 to 10 linemen that they keep. So there's like things like that that you can't control. But when, they, when the headline writes up, oh, he got cut and signed a practice squad, you kind of get pushed down a little bit. And if the news isn't as worthy, which I understand fully, just you can't allow that to think. You can't let that get in your head to think you're playing bad football. Because some people mentally really get down on themselves. And I didn't necessarily allow that to happen. The, the media part, when that went away, it didn't necessarily really bother me. There was like, there's some, most people in my personal life didn't really uh, distance themselves too much. Some did, but it wasn't, but like, it didn't necessarily bother me that much. It was more so you can't allow that to make you think you're not a good football player anymore when you're actually going out there on the practice field and playing well or in preseason games and playing well. That was a very, just as long as you don't let that happen to you, then you can keep your mindset better now if you let that think oh i'm not good anymore because no one's talking to me then that can really uh derail careers i've seen it happen time and time again in nfl locker rooms it, it it's a brutal business i know a lot of good players that didn't that fell out after a year or two and i knew some players that should have been out after a year or two make it longer and it's kind of a crapshoot uh when you start getting at the bottom of the roster so it, it uh it, it's an interesting uh, thing to watch and become accustomed to. Speaking here with Sean Hickey, Syracuse and NFL offensive line alum. Sean, for for you to go through this and to learn, you know, this level of independence. We live in a society where there's a lot of look at me, look at me, you know, with social media and whatnot and clicks and and all this all this BS. 
you know, I, I, I've said it a million times. I use social media because I own a business. If I, if I didn't, you know, own my business and wasn't in the entertainment industry, I'd be a hermit. You know, I so said people could go on my Facebook all the time and outside of a, a picture of me being in Florida with the lady or hanging out with my mom or, you know, a picture of my dog here and there, I don't talk about my personal life. But there's the flip side of that coin, and that's the people that constantly need reassurance. Tell me I'm pretty. Tell me that I'm awesome. Tell me that I'm good at what I do. Tell me that I'm a great football player. Buy my jersey. Do this, do that. And they get sucked up into that life. For you to be where you're at is commendable after all the adversity that you've been through, you know, to to be standing upright and to be confident in yourself and to really, you know, give us a, a compelling conversation that I'm so happy we get to have here this morning but, you know, there is that other side to it. And so just what you can say about being mentally tough on the field, but also off the field, especially in a society that we live in today where people do need constant reassurance. Yeah, that is a big that is a big issue that's going on right now. For me personally, when I was going through like the moving around uncertainty of the career, not being exactly where I wanted to be, I kept that internal and I dealt with it on my own. And I never like if you go, I, I haven't sent a tweet out. I don't think in two years, and I don't I don't tweet ever. Now when I was in college, I tweeted. It was more of like because I got one in, right before the twenty twelve season because of a class I had in the summer. And then like you kind of got up with your friends and tweeting back and forth each other, and everybody was doing it. Then for me, it died down. I, there was no reason. I'm not really a person that is going to overly broadcast my social life or my personal life and i don't need I, like as long as you're at peace with yourself is what this independence has taught me if, if you're confident if you're truly confident in yourself as a person as a player as a just as an individual you don't necessarily need to be putting all that stuff out on social media and that never appealed to me but i knew a lot of teammates that did and i know some of it's about money because they're trying to build their brand which is which is in the locker room, which I mean, I, I guess from a financial aspect, I get, but some of it goes way, way, way too far. And they're interjecting themselves in issues that were not necessarily issues, but sometimes it gets, it gets a little distracting in terms of like the brand that you're trying to build. And then the team's like, wait, why did you tweet that? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? We don't need any distractions. And it, it does become a little bit of its own monster. So I always stayed out of it. If I just felt it was better just to stay out of that in general. I know some people say, well, it's not the best business strategy, which I kind of understand. But in my situation, I, there was no, I was a, I was a offensive lineman trying to make in the NFL. That was my job. And it, there was no brand to build unless you already solidified a career. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't have used social media very much. So that's just the type of person I am. And and for you to, like you said, you 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 figured it out. You worked on it on your own, and tried to find your way and and, and try to you know figure out what was going to be best for you. Do you do you lean on family members? Do you have a support system? Do you have a faith? You know, do you do you believe in God? You know, what what's what were the other things that kind of you know, helps you because I, I mean, I could speak about my life and say, I have a strong belief in God. I have a strong faith. I, I have a close knit group of people who I trust. If I have a question that's, you know, that I'd like to get an answer on and can some, some constructive criticism, 
what do you have to kind of help you navigate through the stuff you've been through? Well, I do have a strong faith in God and I do believe in it. Like that is always like a backbone to that, uh, to going through issues and times that through of adversity help. But whenever I was going through that, before the draft, I had this big support system, people that I probably shouldn't, like, I had the best intentions. I remember, like, before the draft in college, I was like, I'm going to do things the right way. I'm not going to screw this up. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to do things the right way. But whenever there's so many people coming from so many different areas and, like, you have to, like, give your family, uh, time that they want then you need to give your friends time that they want they need to give other people the time they want you're trying to please everyone the only thing i kind of wish someone went back on is i would i wish pre-draft that would have been way more selfish and when i was with the saints i wish that would have been a little more selfish and kind of tell the the support system actually stop let me just do this on my own because that's how i know how to get through adversity best on my own and my and my belief system now i do have because not everybody in my support system necessarily before the draft was right about what their opinions. And I real looking back on that now, they weren't necessarily good intentions, but they didn't really know much about the situation. So I, the best person for me to trust in that regard was myself. Coach Hicks was another very good advisor that I had former coaches. Like I would call Pat Perlis. I talked to Greg Atkins, like a lot of those, a lot of people that in the industry that cared about me, we're good advisors and we're good a support system. I mean, I love my family and I love you know and I love my my social group and all that, but they didn't know necessarily a lot about that process. So whenever the after the draft happened and I kind of realized that and I kind of wished I would have been a little bit more into kind of squashed out some of the outside noise, I learn to deal with it on my own because it got easier. It got a little easier just talking to a few former coaches, getting their opinion, say, thanks mom, dad, uh, like my brothers and sisters and family members. I said, thanks for the support. I appreciate it. But like, I'm going to kind of do this my own way right now because I tried the other way and it necessarily didn't help me out a lot. So it's nothing on them. It's just knowing the industry is so important. And when you, are in this position where you don't have much of a career, like a time frame for a career and you can't screw up. You kind of just want to keep that circle small and a people of knowledge. Now you lean on people with you're physically or mentally in trouble, but I felt I was pretty on par for the most part with my state of mind and I could navigate it with a few advisors so that was kind of like how I went through it after my rookie year. So, you know, now you now you go here and you can be an advisor in a way to, to what's going on with, with Syracuse as a former offensive lineman on the team. You know, Syracuse is tied for the most penalized team in the nation. And so of, of, of everyone that plays Division I FBS college football, Syracuse is tied for number one with Cincinnati with 9.33 penalties per game through nine games. They have 84 penalties in total. Uh, What's your take on that? You know, how much of that is because a lot of that obviously comes from like false starts and, 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 you know, issues there and, you know, and, and holding and whatnot. So when you look at all these penalties that have happened, 
what can you say about that? Is is that is that a player issue? Is that a coach issue? Is that a teaching issue? Is it, you know where does that fall on? Because self-inflicted wounds are the worst worst ones, and Syracuse is tied for first in the nation in self-inflicted wounds. Yeah, so it happened to us at Syracuse as well with some uh, dumb penalties that you couldn't really come out in the media and say why they were happening, and you couldn't. And this actually happened with us in uh, Miami in 2017. We were one of the highest penalized teams in the nation, in the in the NFL. It kind of becomes a snowball effect where once it happens and it happens again and it happens again, it, it, it kind of takes on its own beast in a way. And like we would have coaches run you after practice for how many penalties you had, or you would have like different types of ways of handling it, handling it through practice. But it really comes. There's a couple things now. False starts. A little interesting thing that people don't really know. Like I remember when I was my last two years. I think it was my last year, actually, 2014. We had a written, written, we had a a sound, a snap count that was very shaky, and it would be like it'd be like a second sound, like down, and then a long pause, and then we said hi. So whenever you hear down, you're waiting for a while for that next that next noise that next like they like said hut but sometimes a defender might mimic it someone else might make a sudden noise and then someone moves because they're waiting they would be waiting for terrell or whoever to throw hunt to, or to snap to give the cadence so whenever you wait something like that that's something people don't think about depending how the snap count is actually built in sometimes people jump that way and that's why in the in the nfl it's a lot of it, it's a non-rhythmic snap count so that you try to eliminate that eventually when we identified that in 2014 we changed it it actually helped uh there's a couple there's in practice i feel like just a couple guys they get antsy in the game and they're trying to make a play they're trying to get someone out of bounds and they can't really control their their instincts that well and they might hit someone out they might hit someone on the sideline that pushes out that's a 15-yard personal foul the holdings are a technique issue uh, if you're an offensive line and you're hold, and you're getting beat on the edge, or you give up the inside move and you're trying not to get the quarterback killed, but you grab on, that's more with your eyes and your technique. If you're looking at the defender's head and he shakes you, and you're not looking at the inside part of his inside number on his chest, and, and you're not staying with him, or if he's just pure, pure faster than you, then that's that's more of a technique issue. So it's all different types of things, whether it be something that the system has built in. I'm not sure the exact snap counts that Syracuse uses now, so I can't attest to that. But a lot of times it's just kids trying to really do their job a little too much and they're not thinking with their head. And sometimes it's technique. It, it, it's a lot, it's a, it's a beast and it kind of turns into a, it, it's like a snowball effect uh, from what I noticed when I was playing. You have guys uh, speaking here with Sean Hickey, offensive line alum at Syracuse as well as the NFL. You you have uh, Ryan Alexander, who was a part of the team, transferred in first season, playing out there with the team on the field for Syracuse, coming from South Alabama. And so you got a newbie there. You got a newbie with Carlos Vettorello, who's a redshirt freshman, playing his first collegiate downs this year on the other side. Then you have guys like Aaron Service, who's played tackle and he's played center and he's getting moved in different places with Sam Heckle being out. You have Pat Davis and Dakota Davis trying to find their footing at a guard position. And you got Evan Adams, who's used to be in the right guard, gets shifted to left guard. 
what from the games that you watched or from what you've seen, what are you seeing from this year's team? Because, you know, Evan Adams is grandpa on the line. Aaron Service has had experience. Dakota Davis and Patrick Davis, you know, less experience. And then Veterello and Alexander had no experience being out on the field wearing orange and blue until this season with the team. Just what you've been taking away from what you've seen. Offensive line is really about a gelling unit, a unit that's close. Now, obviously, I don't know. I, I'm not in those meeting rooms. I don't know necessarily all the techniques that they're being taught. So I don't want to get too much into that because you have to do what you're taught. So if you're doing something that you're taught, it might not be your strong suit. For example, I was a very good lateral setter in college. And then when Pat Perlis came in 2013, he wanted more vertical passing, but he kind of let me do the lateral stuff because under Atkins, I was that's what I was really good at. And then the NFL, I got a little better at vertical. But there's a lot of things like that where if you're all trying to learn one system, some player might not be a great uh, lateral setter, might not be a great vertical setter, but you have to do it anyway. And trying to identify every player's weaknesses and strengths and with them and with the pass rush that, that was, was kind of getting on them a few weeks ago, once a couple sacks happen and you get down and you're throwing the ball and you have to you have to hold off for four set three four seconds, it gets hard. And what was great for me was in 2012 when I first started my first year at redshirt that I blew my ACL my second year ACL my second year in the third year. You had Zach Chavane, you had Mackey, and then you had Pew on the sideline in the first four games. Like, and you had a real strong successful support system around you to help you through that and for me I, it caught on really quick like two games in they're like oh yeah you'll be starting when Pew comes back and you probably have a future and it, and it in 2012 it, that was very comforting to have but if necessary if you don't have all that experience and you're trying to like that was a very good veteran experience for me to have which then transit which gave me experience my second in my 2013 2014 to pass on and 2013, we had a really good line. 2014, we struggled a little bit with our off, but that was a lot of system offensive uh, changes during the middle of the year type thing. Uh, for them right now, for them, it, it, it does get hard when you don't have, when like they lost a lot of uh, experience last year. And it, it is a transition, and especially, and especially in, a tough, in a tough conference where you're getting a lot of great pass rushers. Like the ACC always pumps out pass rushers, they always pump out athletic athletic defensive linemen. So it can it can become difficult. Now next year they may very well be more experienced. They very, they especially in pass protection. Pass protection is tough. A lot of high schools don't throw the ball that much anymore. It's hard to find a quarterback that can make those throws in high school. So a lot, when I got to college, a lot of kids were just good run blockers. They didn't know how to pass block. I was lucky enough to come from a 50-50 system, run pass in high school. We kind of we had five-step drops. We we threw the ball around. And that helped me out. But a lot of kids don't have that when they're coming into college because they didn't have a quarterback at their high school so that could throw. So the, the, all of those factors kind of play in. And pass blocking is a very tough, very particular science where if one person screws up, the whole line screws up. And in the run game, even if if the front side's doing great, but the backside guard and center mess up their block, the cutback lane's not there, and there's a, a loss for two. So it, it, it just when one person messes up, the whole unit messes up, and that's a very big thing with offensive line. It's a very frustrating thing because 
you might only have two bad plays a game, but on those two plays, everybody else did their job, and it's a game. It's a it's a gain of one, or it's a or it's a hit on the quarterback, and then you might, and then all the plays you do well on, someone else screws up. So that it, it's very hard to get all five, especially when there's not a lot of experience, or if there's a lot of new, there's a lot of players that don't have a lot of experience to be able to gel like that. And it's it, it's a it's tough, and I feel I feel for them because I've been in lines where, especially my fifth year, where things weren't going right, and we had a lot of musical chairs and the O line going around. I think I was the only one to make it through the year without an injury, with a, with a serious injury, and you're you're rotating guards that never played before. You're rotating tackles and centers. It, it gets tough. So I, I feel for them, and I hope they use this as a learning experience to finish out the year strong and going into next season. Yeah, you know, and, and and going off of that and all the different things that you brought up and if one guy's doing it right and a, another guy, you know, struggles and if this is working, but it's not working for if everybody's good at a certain technique, but you're doing a different one and then one guy's going to be off of it, but he's got to figure it out. You know, you bring up all these great points, which, ha- you know, which may have led to where Syracuse is sitting right now. Like I said, tied for the most penalized team in the country and out of out of 130 Division One FBS schools, they're tied for the worst when it comes to uh, you know penalties per game with a little over nine penalties a game. They are the worst team in the country. They are number 130 of 130 in sacks allowed. They have given up 45 sacks in nine games for a loss of 267 yards. They average they average giving up five sacks per game. So you know people give a lot of a lot of negativity to Tommy DeVito as the quarterback, but when you are the team that, when you're the offensive line that gives up more sacks than anybody else in the nation, you know that's something to talk about. So, what what's your take on in that respect of Syracuse being a team that cannot protect their quarterback, has not protected their quarterback, and 45 sacks in nine games, 267 lost yards, and five sacks allowed per game, being the most in the nation at this point. It's tough. It's a. It becomes a tough law, a tough, tough meeting room to be in to be going over the same probably technique errors over and over and over again. Uh, it's it's not pretty. It's not fun, and which means the offensive line is, is struggling in pass protection. Yes, there are different aspects of the offense that do lead to sacks as well. So I just want to point that out. Uh, if receivers aren't getting open, it's four or five second uh, protection, probably getting a sack if he's not getting rid of the ball. A lot of times, I, like, I'm not attesting this to Syracuse. In, like, I don't, I'm not in those meeting rooms to hear who has who and the assignments. But running backs also uh, play a part in, in pass protection. If they don't pick up the right guy and the O-line thinks they're, they're working to, to a one linebacker, but then the running back thinks they're all, he's also working to that linebacker and another linebacker comes free, then that's also creates an issue. So it is it is hard, especially that sacks are mentally defeating. It's mentally defeating as a group when, let's say you you won your block and you're like, oh yeah, I won it. I'm one on one, third down. I'm left tackle. I, I stop my high end pass rusher, but then you turn around, there's another sack, and you're just like, then someone else got the sack. And you're like, ugh. Yeah. And like it, it is mentally draining, and then. When you get behind the chains and you get down, it, it's like, again, it's a snowball effect. Those DNs are pinning their ears back. 
They know they're just outright rushing. There is no threat of a run game. And then as a pass blocker, you really have to be on point. You have to look at all, all of his uh, tails he's giving, whether his inside foot's back, how much weight, how far is he from you, what's the down and distance, can I attack him and mess up his rush where he has to go around me way farther. But if I risk that, if I do that, I risk getting beat inside. There's a lot of different things that have to go through your mind when you're down the, behind the chains and it's third and 12 and you're down 14 points in the third quarter. Like that, that gets hard. And then they just pin their ears back and they're allowed to do what they do. They're the most athletically, they're the most athletic, I would say specimens on the team because they're big, they're strong, they're fast, they're thick and it, it gets hard. So it's very, if, if you're, especially if you're new, if you're inexperienced and you didn't come from a great pass rushing, I mean, a pass blocking background, it gets tough. And we were fortunate. My first two years, we kind of struggled a little bit. Uh, 2010, I believe the team, uh, we were a de- pretty decent O-line, but not, nothing amazing. Same in 2011, but it was a little better. And in 2012, everything clicked. Like they always said, we want to be the best O-line in the Big East. The great Coach Atkins always said it. By the end of 2012, we only gave up 13 sacks all year. Only nine were on the offensive line. So, like, that was a great feat, and it took a couple years. And then 2013, we were pretty good, and that kind of rolled over in the next year. And then the following year, we struggled a little bit. But it, it, I've been on both ends of the spectrum where you're, the line as a group is doing really well and the line is struggling. And it, it, it's tough to mentally bring yourself out of that in that meeting room going over the same mistakes that one person's making or the group's making over and over and over again. And that's why some changes have happened, like, like Coach Babers has talked about making some lineup changes and, and things like that, because it does become frustrating. It does. And, it, and, it, and it, it's not fun on anybody. No, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's the thing about it is, you know, I said that this line that they have right now, you know, in my opinion, took, you know, the last four or five years to build, you know, coming out of coming out of Schaefer and into Dino Babers, I, I feel like the line that Syracuse got last year with a 10-3 and record was a line that took a really long time to build. Is that fair to, to say in your opinion? I mean, I'm sure that, that everything's relative, you know, different lines take different time periods and whatnot, but it, there, there's, this, there's a sense of, you know, a few years back with, with Tim Doust as the D-line coach, he, you know, he had a lot of success. He had guys you could use in rotation. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the defensive line had to rebuild and it's taken time and really not until now of recent, you know, so basically like after Jay Bromley was gone after that moment, they've been rebuilding and now they have Elton Robinson and they have Kendall Coleman and they have a lot to write in Josh Black and they have a lot to write home about. But that took time, and the offensive line, it's like they had you. They had Justin Pugh. They had Mackie McPherson. They had Zach Shabane. They, you know, there, there was guys on this line that brought a lot of positives to it. You know, There was three straight years of a 1,000-yard back at Syracuse. Syracuse hasn't had one since the last time that it happened, which was with Jerome Smith. And so you know, they take a long time to build, and I really honestly feel like last year's line took took you know years to build you know four or five years to build is that is that adequate to say does that make sense you know to you that that when it comes to lines because they're really you know you're at the heart of everything the trenches are are the most meaningful George O'Leary who used to be an assistant at Syracuse and then coached at UCF said to me if you don't build your team from the inside out you're doomed to fail if you don't get that in the trenches is how you win championships and you shouldn't be a coach 
So, you know, in that respect, which I agree with, it, it just seems like Syracuse has had those really productive defensive lines and then all that period of rebuilding. And then with you, there was all that production there on the offensive line, and then it had to rebuild into last year, and now I feel like they're doing it again. Yeah, so I feel when you have people on the line that really know how to do their job well and they know their technique, and they see, and you see their day to day operation of how they keep up with that technique. Whether you go and you lift weights and you're doing on your running, then you stop and then you uh, do extra offensive line stuff. You see how good technique is formed. You see how the brain is formed in terms of reading defenses and reading a, someone's pass rush to get that instinctual feel about when someone bolts inside. Then you gotta. And you got to keep your eyes right, and you got to shoot that right that inside hand to stop the inside rush. Or you have to be able to understand where these guys are going, where they're coming from. And te- from a technique perspective, I got to watch Pete Justin Pugh because my rookie year, I mean my freshman year, he was he, he was just starting out. And I remember Coach Burns saying he has the best hips I've ever coached, NFL or college. And I would watch his pass set, and it was so pretty, so I mimicked it. So I tried mimicking it, and it worked for me. And and then uh, Zach came into his own, and guards got to mimic Zach, and they got to see. And you got when you see someone doing it right, and and you're in that room with them, and you can mimic them. It's, it kind of has a downstream effect if you have the talent in the if you have base talent in the room, and that's what we had, and we built it, and then I learned it, and then I caught mine caught on once I started starting it caught on pretty quick then i was able to pass it on down to a couple other people and maintain it for a little bit but then kind of that whole group are the influence kind of waned and then it had to restart again and it took a while to kind of restart that learning process for the rest of the guys and it, up until last year so that that is a it is a when we had all that boom of knowledge and and of technique and like all of that like talent it, it lasted a few years and like the influence of that group lasted a few years, then it kind of, as time goes on, it wanes. And if no one else picks it back up right away, let's say after the 20, uh, after me, Rob Trudeau, Mackie, after we were all gone, if they didn't necessarily pick up right away, then it takes time to build back up. And they built it up to last year where they were doing extremely well. And then it, you have to either be able to carry it on. And if you don't carry it on, you have to rebuild it. And that's kind of seems like where they're at right now. Yeah, absolutely, and I couldn't the say culture, the room, the technique, culture, the just how you operate as an offensive line in terms of are you and your guard extremely close? Do you know exactly what how he's if, if I know how Shabane or if I how knew how Rob was going to set, then I dictated how I was going to set and how we we're going to pass off this game. Or if he, if I have inside help, then I can be a little aggressive and not I can be a little aggressive on the D end and not worry about getting beat inside because the guard's going to be there and I can uh, protect the outside a little bit more. So it's, it's all those things and how much you gel and how much you guys feed off of each other and also about the knowledge that you acquire. And that's what we had. And it lasted a few years and now it's kind of, it, it needs to be rebuilt again, it seems. But they, they have time up going the next year. I feel like they have a base good group uh, that, benefit from this experience like for next year what's your, 
And what would be your words of advice for Evan Adams? I mean, I, I call I call him grandpa on the line because he's the one that's, you know, been there the longest. And, you know, this has got to be frustrating for him to not have a, a ton of film that he can put out from this year and, you know, different, you know, different pieces. I mean, looking at the fact of, like we said, you know, mo, you know, tied for the most penalized team, team that allows the most sacks and not a lot of great film out there you know, for them, but great film for the defensive lines on the other side that are trying to make the NFL. What would be your words of advice for, for Evan Adams, who's played guard on this team for such a long time and is a successful guy and has done good things and was a part of that successful team last year? What's your words of advice for him as he gets set to, you know, obviously try for the NFL if that's what he intends to do, knowing that, you know, there, there's not a lot to show this season, which isn't necessarily his fault. Yeah, I, I feel for him. I, I, I do tremendously. Uh, I kind of was in the same situation in 2014 when we were struggling and we went 3-9. and nine. And going into that year, looking from the 2013 season, I felt we were going to be pretty good. Uh, we didn't lose too many people. We lost Jerome. We lost Mackey. And, but we, we had the base together. Then our offensive philosophy, which was was changed going into the following year and it didn't really catch on and we struggled and then we had to make a coaching change midway through the year on offense which is never good and when it's and i was in there trying to give my best film possible for the nfl and you i would my advice to him would be go out there still be a leader bring your teammates along with you but make sure you're winning your one-on-one battles make sure that your techniques on point and just do everything that you can control uh, to win your block, to win your job, but also be a leader on that team and on that offensive line. It's a tough situation. Whenever you're only getting two yards of rush and you blow your guy off the ball, but someone, but a, a, a defender comes from somewhere else and stops it behind the line, or you guys are running plays, like if you're running plays that aren't necessarily being effective or, or things of that nature like happened to us in 2014, it was extremely frustrating. I remember getting in this rut where I was saying kind of the same things to the media every week about what we have to improve on and it never improved and the, we had a quarterback carousel going on that year I think we had four starting quarterbacks after Terrell got hurt and it, it, we had a tremendous amount of people in there and, and turnover and it's hard and we struggled on offense our defense was great that year Actually, people probably don't remember because it wasn't noteworthy, but they were very good. And if our offense, we I think we forced five turnovers on Notre Dame and at MetLife, and we lost like twelve to three or twelve to six or something. I can't really remember, but it's frustrating. So I would say to him, get just keep your technique, keep your play at a at a high level, keep working on your one-on-one blocks, winning, win those matchups and bring and do your best to bring everybody else along with you and just get your job done because your job, getting your job done for one helps you, but on more importantly helps the team out. So that's what I would, I would give to him and put, just go out there every week with that mentality. That coming from Sean Hickey here this morning. Sean, before I let you go, uh, two final pieces here. You had Doug Marone as a head coach that eventually went into Scott Schaefer being the head coach 
of the team. You know, Doug is is someone who has been in the NFL. He's back in the NFL. You reconnected it with him in Jacksonville and had an opportunity, you know, your last opportunity there before the XFL and all that stuff came up. You know, you had that there. So just what can you say about where Dino's at right now? I mean, are is Syracuse missing something from Doug Marone to, to Dino? Because, I mean, Doug knows what it takes to be in the NFL. He knows what the NFL is looking for. And my confusion is that there's been plenty of talented people that have come through Syracuse, but nobody's getting drafted anymore. And if they're getting drafted, they're getting drafted late. There's a stigma. When Doug Marone was there, you guys were getting drafted. You guys were getting opportunities. You know, you you were, you know, still having that connection despite injury and different things that happen. It seems like it's really hard for guys to catch on coming out of the Dino Babers era. So what can you say about that? And, you know, maybe if you can lend some insight to that at all. Well, this is no, I mean, Coach Babers job, number one, is to win. So whatever he has to do to bring this program up and to make a winning culture, that is his job. His job, like now, in recruiting and all that stuff, getting to the NFL is a, is a part of recruiting and, and how often do you put people out is a part of it. But his job, number one, is to win. So if he has an offensive, uh, an offensive philosophy or system that he believes is going to win games, then he should do it. Like then, so I don't, I don't give him any fault there. However, Coach Marone was an NFL guy. He would half the meeting that Coach Marone would talk. He'd be mentioning the NFL, referring to the NFL back when he was in the NFL. All this stuff, he would always say the same type of stuff, and you kind of knew his heart was in the NFL. He wanted to come back to Syracuse, and he gave him an opportunity, and he loved the school, and he missed it. But his, he was truly an NFL guy, and he ran his offense, relatively speaking, as an NFL. As an NFL offense. Now in the 2012 year, we started going no huddle. We did a more run pass play, uh, run pass option. Uh, but it was still pretty NFL theme based, especially with the, the way we were throwing the ball and things along things along that nature. And he just had a lot of connections to the NFL. And the defense was a at the time was a, was. I wouldn't say a full-out NFL defense, but it was pretty similar to a lot of them. And so there was a lot of familiarity with the systems. Like, when I went to, when I got in the NFL, a lot of the lingo that we used was exact lingo that the NFL uses, a lot of the blocking schemes, things of that nature. So just with him, and then when we got in the Coach Schaefer era and when Coach McDonald came uh, along for the offense, the 2013 was kind of, uh, we kind of kept a little bit of an NFL uh aspect to our offense i wouldn't call us a pro style offense but we we kept an aspect to it but 2014 he said goodbye to that and we were total college spread uh option reading things along that nature to run extremely it was i would call it extremely called extremely spread extremely system oriented and we I didn't think we necessarily we had the players to, to do that. I felt we were built more alongside of a kind of an NFL style offense. And if you don't have the players for that, which was the case of twenty fourteen, I think they do have the players for that right now, the skill positions, things along that nature, but there's more to it than that. But in the NFL aspect, Doug Marone was an NFL guy. He ran it like an NFL ship. Uh, he kinda loosened up a little bit his third year, I mean his fourth year or twenty twelve year with kind of like the day-to-day operations and kind of the, the way we were running, doing the no huddle, uh, that helped us in the college world. 
but he it also transitioned the NFL very well, and it, that was just who he was. So I don't. I'm not in the. I'm not in the Syracuse uh, meetings right now. I'm not able to attest to what their philosophies are. But Coach Marone's philosophy was a very NFL-oriented philosophy. That coming here this morning from Sean Hickey here with us on Wake Up Call with Dan Tortora. As Sean, final piece here is the pay for play. The NCAA had their had their hand pushed by California. California passed legislation that's supposed to take place in January of I believe 2021, uh, making making the case that there should be a compensation for name, image, and likeness for student athletes in college, as well as the opportunity for them to potentially hire agents. Once that was passed, Kentucky, Colorado, Pennsylvania, New York, Florida, a bunch of states started to get involved in trying to look at their own legislation. Amidst all of this, the NCAA surprised me, at least, that they not only responded as swiftly as they did, but that they agreed. But I also have said the notion over and over again that if you want to get something done in this country, have California or New York pass legislation on it, and typically you'll see some movement on it in some way, shape, or form. So now there is this pay-for-play opportunity. Name, image, and likeness is there. There's still got to work out the kinks to it, but the NCAA has agreed that student-athletes can make money playing college sports. What are your thoughts on it as a former college student-athlete? My... The whole when I was leaving college, the whole Northwestern Union thing was going on, and that never really came to fruition. But that kind of, as far as I can remember, this was always kind of an issue: should players get paid or not? But the, the likeness issue, I really believe I may be wrong. You, you, you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I really do believe it started with Johnny Manziel when he was on the cover of the NCAA football game, and they were making so much money off of him that I believe he got in trouble for signing autographs for like a hundred bucks or something. Or I can't necessarily remember. And that really kind of started the likeness issue because we got a settlement a couple years ago for how many games were you in. I think it got about like $2,000 or something like that, like post-football, and it, for the guys that used to be in the video games. And then we had the class action lawsuit where the year after I left, you were, the players now are getting a stipend. And when we were in college, we never got that. And if you didn't, uh, if you if your family had a background where you didn't uh, qualify for the grant and aid, you didn't really you didn't get any money. Some schools, if you live on off-campus housing, you get checks for off-campus housing. You live with three teammates. You keep the rent. You you keep the the remainder uh, that's not used on rent. But Syracuse, we lived on on-campus apartments and on-campus housing, so we didn't get that money. So I know how it is to. But I actually got a job for a little bit as a bouncer for a half a, for a semester, and you don't, you're not making much money. And I had a coach one time say, "You guys should be making minimum wage for the hours that you're mandatory to be here, because that can at least keep you relatively afloat financially while you're in college because you can't work. Yeah. And I know you're not paying for school, but to have something in your pocket whenever you only have, if you only get two meals." a day or one meal a day, you're only able to get on campus one meal a day to eat and you have practice of all this stuff or if you're in the spring semester and you want to get something from like from the varsity or something and you don't have you only have 20 bucks to your name it gets kind of it gets kind of hard but the likeness issue if you are bringing millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into the school into the NCAA 
and you're they're making brand off your likeness. I understand the players want to get some of that money. Now it does get a little dicey on the alumni coming in and saying we can get you if you know to a recruit. Like that part is going to be a little tough. I don't know necessarily how they're going to navigate that. That's my little issue about this: is does can Alabama and and Clemson and all these powerhouses with their strong alumni base kind of build up this infrastructure where they can get they can even get offensive linemen speaking gigs or anything in like while they're in school or like a a dealership puts a running back like a running back a receiver who isn't nationally known on their on their dealership and he's making money i'm not sure how all that's going to work right so like and if you have a mega star on the team you can't necessarily allow him walking around with a million like a million dollars in his pocket in school while the rest of the team is only making like a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars and someone has a million even though he's bringing in the revenue i think he might should be able to have a little bit more than the rest of the team because it is him, but it might need to be dispersed just for the effort, just for the, not necessarily because I do believe like a, like a, a system where if you bring in money, then you should get paid more like that. I, I do believe in that, but in college, it's a little different with recruiting and you don't want these five or six schools basically dominating with massive alumni bases and like the infrastructure to basically get you money for endorsement deals or whatnot. So I don't know how that's going to work. That's going to be the tricky part that they're going to have to deal with. Like if you California passed it, so they weren't going to let USC with that alumni base just bring in all the recruits, and then all the best recruits are now going to Alabama, are now going to go back to USC because of the financial incentives. Right. So it get that part gets tough because you don't want to ruin college football's competitive feel. You don't want this. I mean, you kind of see Clemson, Georgia. Ohio State, Alabama, in the top five every year right now, it seems like. But there is some interchange. Of, their teams do jump in and out of it. You just don't want to see the five same ones every single year. So that's like the tough waters that you gotta, you, that you have to navigate. Because it would be tough for places like Pitt, like Syracuse, like Maryland, to be able to – Maryland maybe because of Under Armour, but they get to compete. It's hard for them to repeat, compete with recruits if – like, oh, you'll be a starter offensive lineman here at Clemson, and you'll end up with like eight to ten grand per semester based off of a local car shield, uh, car dealership, or uh, putting your poster up around campus or selling memorabilia. Like, I, so I don't know how that's all going to work. So they need to figure out a way to make that work and get the players some money so they can, so they can, sp- I mean, spend a little bit while they're there. But at the same time, that you can't let it go overboard. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah, you know, and, and bringing up the Johnny Manziel thing uh, that he allegedly received a, a five-figure payment for signing autographs, uh, signing photos, mini helmets, and other other memorabilia while he was at school there. But at the same time, you know, we're looking at the fact that Texas A&M could sell his number two jersey. EA Sports could, like you said, could include him as a quarterback with the same height, attributes, and number in their video game. ESPN and CBS could put him on promotional material. Yet he couldn't make any money himself. So it does it does show hypocrisy in it, and you know, name, image, and likeness. Obviously, for for some guys, you know, if you never play in the NFL, you never play in the NBA, never play 
you know, here, there and everywhere, you know, then maybe college is the only place that you can, you know, make that money. And if, if the school is going to make a hundred thousand off of you and NCAA is going to make 200,000 off of you and, 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 you know, and, and, and all these local companies, you know, local small businesses are going to sell your stuff. They're going to make money off of you. And at the end of your career, there's a million dollars that somebody made off of you or 10 million or 20 million and you didn't make a penny. You know, where where is the fairness in that and where does it make any sense? And does that model work anywhere else in the professional realm in our country? So, you know, it, it is a corrupt situation and it is a model that makes no sense at the same time they have to tread very lightly because as i've talked about on the show before there's a lot of issues that can arise from opening this door yes so you're 100 right about some guys aren't going to make it to the nfl and they're good college players and they in extremely extremely effective in college they they're breaking records and they're bringing in so much money and they're not going to see a dime of it. But one issue I always kind of had a little bit was they say, Oh, you can come to college and change your life and get a degree. But I know a lot of people that they brought in, they get brought in. They, they kind of get stuck in like an easy major to keep them eligible. Right. And they don't get a, a phenomenal job after they're gone. And they were kind of misled as an 18, 17 year old kid. And whenever they leave at 22 and they made a bunch of money for the team and for the NCAA and they leave and they realize they didn't make like they're not in debt, but they're not, they're not in debt, but they don't have any money either. Right. And depending on the degree that they had, if they took whatever it took to keep them eligible, I was lucky enough to graduate from the, the Whitman school of management, but a lot of kids didn't have that luxury and they are the, they kind of struggle and they kind of wish they had a little nice nest egg or a couple thousand dollars coming out of college, like to, to get their life started. So it is a, that is a hundred percent right. And at the same time, you don't want necessarily five schools within a massive alumni base and you shopping your school, not only based on the team or based off of the, uh, the academics of the school, but also saying, all right, what, what, school can give me uh when i'm done fifty thousand dollars instead of thirty thousand dollars in profit or whatever the case may be so it is a very tread lightly it is it is right and it's just in thinking but you have the way college is with all the teams all the conferences it it's got to be very methodically regulated and planned out because you don't want you don't want five teams dominating or you don't want get it to get a recruit because another team is basically saying you'll be able to make 20, 30 more in cash here than there. So then it's going to get a little dicey. So that's kind of my opinion. That's my opinion on it. Everybody has their own. That's just what I've seen. Some guys that, that experiences and like how I felt in college and then how my view has evolved since college. So that's, that's, that's my point of view. That coming from Sean Hickey and, and a great point of view and bringing up a lot of great pieces and great elements of this coming up. Sean, I can't thank you enough for sharing, you know, your story here this morning, sharing, you know, not only what you've been through, but your thoughts about, you know, what's going on at Syracuse from your perspective and things that you've learned and just the mechanics of it all and just the overall knowledge and wisdom that you have. And then to impart your thoughts on the changing climate of the NCAA and student athletes and making money and whatnot. I mean, 
I, I, I look forward to having you back on the show very soon. I look forward to keeping in touch. I remember the day that I was sitting in my apartment and uh, in congratulating you on getting an opportunity in the NFL. I remember when you went off to the Saints and sitting here with you this morning has, has really meant a great deal to me. So I look for, forward to the opportunity of keeping in touch with you. Yeah, I really do too. I'm very uh, big. Thanks for having me on. Uh, enjoy catching up. And uh, I'm always going to be bleeding orange. It's going up to Syracuse is one of the, my, my favorite times of the year when I get to make the trip up and I'll always be an orangeman. And I, I love it. And it was one of the best years. It was the best experience of my life.